welcome to 15 Minutes in Canberra. I'm Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth US Asia Centre. Today we are so fortunate to be joined by Dr Lauren Richardson. Lauren is a lecturer with the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at ANU here in Canberra. There at ANU, her specialty has been the role of non-state actors in diplomatic interactions in Northeast Asia, particularly Japan-Korea relations. Previously, Lauren has been the recipient of the Prime Minister's Australia-Asia Award. And if you've never heard of the Coral Bell School or Lauren Richardson, Korea watchers will no doubt have heard of the expert Victor Cha. And uh, Victor Cha has called Lauren Richardson a formative thinker who will shape the future of Korean studies in her area of expertise and in public policy. Lauren, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on your program. (laughs) (laughs) So this past week, we've seen the US Secretary of State and US Secretary of Defense do their first trip to Asia. They visited Japan and South Korea and held diplomatic talks there. Now, Japan and Korea are obviously really important U.S. allies. Can you please give people an understanding of what is really going on in the Japan-Korea relationship at the moment? And do you think that this visit by the U.S. Secretaries of State and Defense are going to do anything to change what's happening in the dynamic there? Good question. Uh, This relationship has been in trouble um, for a long time, but particularly in the last few years, it deteriorated a lot under the Trump administration wasn't directly related to the Trump administration, administration. Um, but the fact that he didn't assume the United States traditional mediator role of trying to really push them to overcome their differences, um, the relationship really went into freefall. It's really just an ongoing dispute over history problems. There's been a lot of domestic lawsuits in South Korea in the last few years, which have challenged the treaty, the bilateral treaty um, they have. And they've kind of gradually been eroding the basis of that treaty. Um, the problem is that Japan still regards that treaty as being um, relevant. Mm-hmm. And it's really the cornerstone of Japan's policy towards South Korea on these history problems. But South Korea views that treaty as pretty outdated. And it's, it's very much wanting to give the victims back some of the agency that they lost when that treaty was signed. And you're talking about um, victims of the World War II um, comfort women and also nuclear attack victims? Yeah, it's mostly uh, Korean forced laborers, Ah. the ones who had to provide um, labor for the Japanese imperial effort, and also the comfort women. They've been the the two major victim categories Mm. that are causing the bilateral disputes So I think what we see, at least in Australia, in a lot of our news reports is how bad the relationship between Japan and Korea is going. Not often do we hear journalists or anyone else talk about what the solutions are. Um, So I'd really love to spend some time talking with you about what is actually going to bring these two countries together, because not only is it in the US's interest that they work together, it's very much in Australia's interest. Yeah, it's a really important question. And the best way to answer that question is to look at what has really been causing the majority of the problems between the two countries. And that, as I mentioned, is the lawsuits, right? The fact that they're undermining the treaty. And so normally when two countries have a treaty and that treaty comes into dispute, what they can do is amend the treaty, amend the contentious aspect of it. 
Um, Japan did this when, in the 1960s, when its security treaty with the United States had become problematic. They realized it's very unequal sort of treaty. It favored the U.S. more. So they entered into negotiations and amended it um, to sort of bring it up to the current circumstances. So what South Korea and Japan could do is just amend the very specific part of the treaty that says all claims concerning victims um, from that colonial period have been settled and they could amend it to either remove that clause or you know to say that they're not settled and South Korea could consider paying Japan back the money that was paid at the time mm. that should have gone to the victims that in many cases didn't and Japan could then use that money in turn to um, provide it directly to the victims if mm. they win lawsuits. Can you expand on or reflect more on the, how different wartime experiences have been in terms of you look at the relationship between Japan and South Korea and then you look at how Germany has treated uh, what it did doing, during World War II quite differently in terms of recognising what it did and um, spending a lot more time talking about it more openly. In Northeast Asia, as you would know, there's a lot more of a culture of um, shame and not wanting to have to go through those really horrific events again. Why is it so different between how Japan is responding and how countries like Germany respond? Yeah, it's a really big question. I'll try to give some uh, simple answers. But firstly, it comes down to the fact that, I mean, both Germany and Japan have apologized in various ways and paid reparations. Um, but in Germany, we've seen much more consistency across political parties. Um, and it's a very consistent you know, apologetic um, position that we see among German leaders. But in Japan, there have been apologies, but then there's often been actions taken by officials that serve to undermine those policies, like, you know, visits by prime ministers to Yasukuni Shrine, where there are class A, B, C war criminals um, enshrined, and, you know, unapologetic statements. Um, prime Minister Abe toyed with you know, taking back the comfort women apology. <laughs> so there's been all this backtracking in Japan. You know, it's one step forward, two steps back. Um, and we can't simply say, yeah, it's partly cultural difference, but it was also shaped, the different sort of contrition policies of Germany and Japan were shaped in large part by the US occupations in those countries. So in Germany, you know, the US set up a multilateral security arrangement, NATO, and basically, Germany had to be really socialized um, with those countries that had done a lot of bad things to you. Whereas Japan, as we know, the U.S. set up a, a hub and spoke system in the area. And because they're separated by bodies of water, there wasn't a lot of incentive for Japan to start trying to mend those relationships. Mm. And I think, too, even when um, Japan did make a lot of efforts to do that, I know in South Korea as well, there have been a similar, you know, nationalism um, feeling where people and politicians will also play up that that anti-Japan sentiment. Exactly. And I think there's huge differences in the cultures of Japan and South Korea when it comes to apologies and justice. So, for example, it's it's quite common in Japan for officials to not show emotion. That's part of their culture. Mm. you know. So they'll say sorry and they feel they're being very sincere. But in Korea, you know, there's sort of an expectation that you know, show you're sorry. You know, they want to see the emotion and, mm. you know, Koreans might be a lot more, you know, there's been cases where they've 
set themselves on fire in front of Japanese embassies, cut off their finger in front of the Japanese embassies. Like they want to see, you know, quite more of a an you know emotion behind the statement. That is so fascinating that the different cultures in Japan and Korea mean there's such a different understanding of what um, an apology means. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's not likely that those differences are really ever going to be bridged. You know, Koreans, I think, will always see Japan as being quite insincere if it's apologies. And Japan thinks, well, we've been very sincere. So I think Japan's a lot more formalistic. They'll point to statements and official documents, whereas Koreans want to see more action. You know, they, mm. they want to see that in action, that, that sorriness. <laughs> So, Lauren, um, looking at the uh, Korea-Japan relationship and also reflecting on our own position here in Australia, uh, is there anything that Australia can do in this situation or is it, in fact, the opposite? Australia shouldn't try and do anything in this situation. And in terms of working both with Japan and Korea, what should Australia be doing better? Yeah, I think... There are things we can do. I don't think Australia has a direct role that it could play in mediating the history problems. And I think that's because, as I've mentioned, these problems are really driven by non-state actors. They're driven by victims. So I don't think a country could be a mediator if they're coming at it from a state perspective, you know, because if it was just up to governments, I think Japan and Korea could overcome their problems. But there's, there's this other non-state um, element and also Australia values its relationships with both Japan and South Korea. If it was to get involved, I mean, you can, you really at some point have to take a side, you know, and that would just be really detrimental counterproductive to the other side. So, but what I think Australia could do is look at what their common interests are with Japan and South Korea. One is, you know, the hydrogen economy, really, you know, try to bring them together in trilateral discussions and try to remind them that they have other common interests um, aside from their shared dark history mm. and the U.S. alliance. Um, they have other interests in the region and to try and encourage them to work in a trilateral framework mm. would be great. You mentioned NATO before and... Um Recently, there's been a meeting, a leaders meeting of the Quad, Australia, US, Japan and India. Now, I'm not sure if this is really in your field, but would love to know just your personal views. There's been suggestions that in, in future, the Quad could be something like an Asian NATO and also that people should explore Quad Plus arrangements. Do you have any thoughts on having Quad Plus South Korea in some aspects? And if so, would that work in what particular areas? Yeah, it is. Um, there is a lot of talk about this at the moment. Um, South Korea has a lot of reservations about the Quad and the Indo-Pacific policy more generally because they, they see the Indo-Pacific as kind of a Japanese construct and obviously having a lot of distrust um, with Japan. And at the same time, they're really worried that it is an anti-China containment policy. And as I'm sure your listeners know, South Korea values its relationship with China probably more than its relationships with all the Quad members except the US, mm. right? And that's because South Korea is very heavily invested in China in, in economic terms. And at the same time, South Korea regards China as being essential to its North Korea policy, resolving that security dilemma, which it cares about more than most problems in the region. 
So I think South Korea is always going to be reluctant to engage in any kind of quad activities that have a military sort of security, a strong security angle. I think they're just going to keep to the exercises that they do, military exercises that they do under the U.S. alliance system Mm -hmm. rather than the quad, which China has a lot of objections to. But I think, yeah, when it comes to other global governance issues, regional governance issues like vaccines, coronavirus, that's probably, you know, going to be, I think, the extent of the sort of activities South Korea would want to join in with, mm. with the Quad. Now, Lauren, we're basically at the end, and I always love to extend to my guests the opportunity to tell us uh, a weird, wonderful, wacky story about something that's happened to them in their career. Do you have anything like that to share? Yes, I think we all have a story like that. Um, most people just probably see me as, you know, a sort of polished scholar. But back when I was uh, uh, just embarking on my graduate studies in Japan, I had a, a really prominent supervisor there and I was really nervous about speaking to him in Japanese because I didn't want to make a mistake. And in my first month, um, being a member of his class, we, we had a dinner, sort of a beginning of the year dinner, welcome dinner for the new students. And I was being characteristically quiet because I didn't want to make a mistake. They were all speaking in Japanese. And then suddenly I heard him mention a word that I know, which was natto. And you might know that that's a, a f- type of food in Japan that's like fermented soybeans. It's not really... A lot of foreigners don't like eating it. So I decided now is a good time to pipe up. So I said in Japanese, oh, I hate that. And he said, really? And <laughs> feeling encouraged, uh, I said, yeah, it's it's disgusting. It makes me sick. And he was increasingly <laughs> looking at me with this really puzzled look. And then finally he said, oh, you're talking about natto. We're talking about natto, which is NATO in Japanese. <laughs> Oh, the Very difference in pronunciation. I could hardly even tell. I know. Natto versus natto. <laughs> One has a double T. So you were saying you hate NATO and it's disgusting. Yes. So he probably thought I was some radical leftist. So <laughs> as opposed to multilateral security arrangements. So there was no way of getting out of that. Yeah. Lauren, it's been so uh, so much a pleasure to speak with you today and hear about the really serious issues in our region as well as the lighter-hearted things that happen to us in our career. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Hayley. Great speaking with you as always. 